Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And today we're doing a second check-in with our reporters in Bangladesh, Caitlin Kenny and Zoe Chase. Hey, Caitlin, d- describe where you and Zoe currently are. Uh, we're staying at the Pan Pacific Hotel in Dhaka. We just got into the capital city yesterday, but we had a very busy week last week in Chittagong. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that you guys are there as the realization of a multi-year dream here at Planet Money, a dream to make a T-shirt and tell the story of that T-shirt's creation. Regular listeners know it's been a long process with many stops and starts, but it is nearing completion. Caitlin and Zoe, you guys are in Bangladesh actually watching our T-shirts get manufactured. Starting in a couple months, you're going to have many stories on the radio. We're going to have long podcasts where we tell you all the fascinating things we've learned about the global economy. We're going to talk to the many, many different people throughout Bangladesh. But this week, we're just doing a quick check-in. We're sort of lifting the veil in the process and talking to you about what you're seeing there uh, while you're out in the field. And just as I was last episode, I'm joined by Pietro Rivoli, an economist and author of the book Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy, whose idea we basically ripped off to do this project. Uh, <laughs> you're, back in the, you're back in the NPR headquarters in D.C., right? I sure am. All right. So let's start things off here. Zoe and Caitlin, when last we spoke, you hadn't yet visited the factory where our T-shirts were made. You've since visited that factory. Talk about it. Just as you're driving down the road towards the factory, you just see all these other clothing factories. And a lot of the buildings on the outside, they sort of brag about who their customers are. Mm. So it'll say like customers, including Macy's, Kmart, Sears. And this is all in English? The the lettering is all in English? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'll say the name of like Garments Limited or Apparels Limited, and then it will say customers, and it will have the very familiar K Kmart logo or the Macy's logo or that kind of stuff. Wow. Remember, the customer speaks English, right? and that's who the sign is for. <laughs> right. So this is for, like, if you're the executive from wherever, from Kmart or Macy's or whatever, and you're coming to do your factory visit, that sign is for you. Or maybe you're looking to start production in Bangladesh. You want to see the companies that you know. You want to see your competitors there. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, whatever your ties are with the Western brands, that's your selling point, you know, because nobody wants to be the first one. Uh, Kmart feels a lot better if Macy's was there first. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so what happens at this factory is sort of every stage past the spinning of the cotton into yarn. So the yarn comes to this factory. It gets knitted. That's the term they use, not not woven, but knitted into fabric for our T-shirts. Mm-hmm. And then that fabric gets dyed, and then it gets cut and sewn into our shirts. So so describe the knitting room. What does it look like? Yeah, so this room is kind of advanced. It looks a little bit like something you might see in America, maybe. It's, there's these sort of seven spools of what is yarn but looks like thread because it's so thin. And what they're doing is they're getting fed really, really quickly into this space-age octopus machine. (laughs) And the octopus is basically 120 arms that are taking the yarn and knitting it really, really, really quick. It's awesome looking. You know, all the yarn just goes up into this central control kind of at the top, and then the fabric starts pouring down in a sort of waterfall. And it's really far off from looking like a shirt, but it does look like this kind of space-age thing is happening in front of you where the thinnest, thinnest yarn you could ever imagine turns into this big, thick slab of T-shirt fabric. 
there were about 32 machines, and it took one guy to run each machine. And when you say guy, is it actual guys, or there, were there women running the machines, yes. or was this pretty much no, all? all men in that room. All you men? No women? No women in there. No women. All men on the also... selling floor were their women. That's yeah. amazing. Wow. So let's so the the hundred and twenty armed octopus is the knitting room. Talk about dyeing. What what does it look like in the dye room? It's wet. That's my big takeaway from the dyeing room. There was a lot of water on the floor. The guys who work in there, they all wear huge boots. But the dyeing room was cool. It's like these huge machines. It kind of made me think of when you're at a laundromat and you're watching a washing machine go around because you sort of see the fabric kind of press against the glass mm-hmm. and it's basically just being doused in color and like how big is it like a regular size washing machine is it like twice the size one of those machines is probably about the size of maybe three or four washing machines if they were stacked side by side uh-huh. like it's big and then so from the dyeing room then it goes to the the cutting and sewing room so and, and that was quite a big transition right yeah, yeah. The first thing you notice is there's just so many more people when you get to the cutting and the sewing floor. There's just a lot more people and a lot more hands. So at one table, there's this machine that cuts the fabric with basically like laser precision. And then right next to that table with that complex machine is people actually cutting part of the fabric. And those, I should mention, those were our shirts. Those were the lantern gray so these, so this was the first time you actually saw our shirts is in this room, the cutting room. Just, just yep. describe what it looks like. So, so, so just so, give me a mental picture here. What does it look like? The picture that you have in your head of when you say Garment Factory Bangladesh, do you picture a lot of women sitting at sewing machines wearing very beautiful shalwar kameezes and scarves with bare feet on pedals with their heads down pushing fabric through a sewing machine? Yeah, pretty much. That's that part. That's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I wanted to mention about the sewing, they just have so many people on one thing. For instance, they have one person who puts a little sticker in the center of where the collar is. That's her whole job. And then passes it to somebody else. And then that person stamps the label, made in Bangladesh, jockey, small, whatever, stamps it right where that sticker is and that's that person's whole job so each person's job is very very tiny and in the one sewing line that was sewing our shirt right Mm -hmm. there were 32 women 32 machines and remember that's the whole knitting room okay (laughs) and this is one sewing line right so this is where the people are getting jobs where they didn't have jobs before. This is the sponge soaking up the unemployed people is is how many hands you need on one sewing line of a T-shirt. And this wow. is why the sewing of apparel takes place in the lowest wage countries you know, because exactly. you need so many people to do it. Mm. You know, it's almost like a funnel of, of specialization, you know, what you're describing. I mean, you've got a country, Bangladesh, that's specializing in apparel, and then you've got this factory that's specializing in knit clothing like t-shirts and underwear and then you've got these women who are specializing in putting that sticker in that exact place i mean Mm -hmm. it's um the level of efficiency that you're gaining there is all due to this specialization but it also it seems to me creates all kinds of risks for the economy for the individual worker for this factory if they're 
livelihood is so dependent on this one thing, this one product, this one skill. Yeah, it's the only game in town. Exactly. All the eggs are in one basket. So I just want to get to the questions that we had talked about last time. So Pietro, when when we talked with these guys last week, you had a couple of questions. And one was sort of for the people who are sort of running the factories, the managers. Yeah, just restate that question. Well, I, I think so. You know, what they're in now is a very simple stage. The knitting stage is relatively simple. The cut and sew is relatively simple. But, you know, they're very complex business processes that go backwards from that and forwards. So, for example, if you go backwards, you'd be talking about things like textile engineering, for example. I was really interested in, you know, what what do the factory owners and the people in this industry think about the prospects for Bangladesh to move into these more sophisticated parts of the value chain? And, and just to be clear, what we're talking about here is sort of like traditionally what Bangladesh has done is they've, they've simply been the place that gets the fabric and cuts it into something else and then sells it. And what you're talking about, Petra, is if they can sort of get into producing the fabric themselves, spinning the yarn sort of weaving it or, or Well, or it, it actually, Alex, the, the two steps in getting to fabric have very, very different levels of technology. Gotcha. So okay. yarn spinning is much trickier than just knitting. And I think to be able to compete, say, with Taiwan or North Carolina in yarn spinning, you know, that would be a leap. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I was surprised by is there is a lot of fabric manufacturing going on here. It exists, like it's there, and other factory owners have talked about basically expanding their operations, but I haven't heard of other countries buying Bangladesh yarn. Pietro would know, and I I wouldn't know, but it doesn't seem impossible, I guess, to imagine. That would be a key step, you know, is producing those inputs in a globally competitive way. In other words, the yarn. The yarn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Zoe, you're saying that that's a possibly a good sign. Were, were there were there worrying signs that you saw? I don't I don't know what to make of this one thing that people said to me, if it's worrying or not. I talked with some of the guys that basically started the garment industry in Bangladesh, and they were saying the unemployment situation in Bangladesh is still so grave, like it's so dire, especially for women. These guys that I talked to said, what's the rush, really? We need to lift so many more people up than are lifted up. If we move to the next rung, too many people will be left behind. That's really interesting. I remember talking to cotton farmers who remember people being very, very upset about tractors coming because, you know, what was going to happen to all these farm workers? At any stage of mechanization, you know, you have to ask that question. But I also wonder in Bangladesh, you know, when there is so much concentration in this one industry, doesn't that also mean that that's where the power is concentrated? You know, that's where the political power, that's where the business power is all concentrated. And I wonder if the powerful people in Bangladesh don't have something to lose, too, as the country moves up. Yeah, I mean, the thing that you were, today Zoe and I talked to a guy, he runs a lot of groups here in Bangladesh, and and one of them is is a group for good governance. And he was talking about the mix of economic power versus political power, and it sort of being this lethal combination that because the industry is so concentrated, because 80% of the exports of this country are in garments, they can't help but have this overwhelming power in the country. 
So, you know, how do you regulate an industry like that when it has so much money and so much power? And basically, it's the only game in town. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The thing, yeah. The thing, though, that's hard to figure out. I think when I asked this one garment owner, she'd been in the business for a long time as a woman, and she said, if we're in control, how come our roads are so bad? How come we? <laughs> how come the power just went out in my office? Like, <laughs> we are not having much success in getting the government to do what we want to do. And I think that just kind of points to the government does seem, I don't know, just pretty weak. Right. It doesn't really seem yeah. to, be able to do that much to just get things to a basic level where things can run, you know, smoothly. There's also the question of thinking about the workforce and, and being skilled or not. There's a problem right now in that I think it's it's very appealing for young people, especially young women whose families don't have a lot of money, to leave school to go work in a garment factory to make money to support themselves and their families. And so when you have all these women dropping out of school and not finishing, how can they ever move up into right. a higher-skilled job, even in a factory, when the most education they have is up to fifth or maybe seventh grade? Mm-hmm. It's really hard to see them moving up to the job where they're running the computer in the dye room or running the machines in the knitting room. And you just you don't see women on those floors in those factories. So yeah. that was one of the, that brings us to one of these questions that we were asking, sort of like for the workers, what would you want to know about what's happening? And your question was simply, what are their what are their hopes for their kids? And Zoe and Caitlin, you got a chance to talk to some workers. What did they say to that question? Education, right, Caitlin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. None of them say I want her to work in a garment factory. They right. say, I want her to get all the way through school and get a good job and be a doctor. Wow. Wow. So they obviously understand at a very intrinsic level what it will take, not just you know for the family and the economy to upgrade, really. And I think what's a little sad about it is that they also, to a certain degree, understand that most of them are a little bit stuck. Yeah. That if they left school at that age and they're now in a position where they're earning money and their families depending on that money. It's not like they can go to night school and get a degree and, and go back and become a nurse or something. They are where they are. Their family needs the money and they don't really have a choice to go back to school for the most part. Mm-hmm. Right. When you talk to them about like the trade-offs that they were making in their own lives, like leaving their village, coming to the city, working in the factories, how did the, most of them feel about those trade-offs? I think like, like this one worker in particular sticks out in my mind. She felt like she had no choice. But when I asked her, you know, if a girl your age came up to you and said, I'm thinking about leaving school and going into the garment industry, what would you tell her to do? She was very clear that she would tell the girl to finish school. Mm-hmm. But she felt like she had no choices. So it's not like she can really regret the decision. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will say one thing is a lot of times there is this focus on Bangladesh being kind of wretched, like it's still a really poor place. And we've seen a lot of things that have been surprising um, about the way people live. But there's always the thing that comes up about the price that we pay for our clothes. That's a huge pressure on this country. Every single person who's in the business talks about it. And 
a lot of these workers are living on a dollar a day, and nobody thinks that's enough to live on. It's really barely enough to survive on for one person, and all these workers are supporting way more than one person. And so nobody from the very top on down to the bottom thinks that's a sustainable way to live at all. People just admit that. But one of the reasons why some factory owners say that the wage hasn't been increased is the incredible price pressure from people like us who buy our clothes at places like H&M. And it's hard to tease that out, but I, I think it's a, it's a very real pressure and I want to understand more about how real it is. Caitlin and Zoe and our shirts are on their way back from Bangladesh, I think right now as we speak, although they're taking very different modes of transportation, our shirts are going to be on a boat. Caitlin and Zoe are on a plane. And we're going to have many, many more stories and podcasts from them and other reporters in the next couple of months. We have pictures of the factory you just heard Zoe and Caitlin talking about at our Planet Money website. You can go there, planetmoney.com. Also, we've been doing this cool thing where everybody who's been traveling for this project has been posting photos and dispatches from the field where they've been. You can check that out. It's seedtoshirt.tumblr.com, and that's Tumblr, T-U-M-B-L-R, drop the E, dot com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Change that provides to my soul, but the change that'll buy things. I, I, I feel like I've been running hard.